This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org ZCNYC. Thanks for listening. A monastic asked Joshu, what is Zazen? Joshu replied, it is not Zazen. Why is it not Zazen, asked the monastic. Because it is alive. So we do a lot of Zazen in formal practice. It's the heart of what we do. Zazen has a name, Zazen has a form. We recognize those that those forms have some flexibility. And perhaps we recognize that Zazen can be done in all circumstances. It may take us a while to deeply take into our bones to realize just how transformative the action of Zazen is. One way to see Zazen, one way to understand it, is that it's a cultivation of insight and compassion. Of course, as we go deeper into this, we begin to realize, where is that insight? Where is that compassion? I don't seem to know anything about it. And we begin to realize that there's no measurement of this. We're not very good at measuring the effect of our own zazen, because its effect is in the the specifics of our life. It's in the relationships of our life, with beings, with insentient beings, in the subtleties of our life. And that has no measurement. In a way, not in a way, but factually, Zazen is seeing into the self. That's actually what we're doing. We're seeing into our sense of who we are of this being, this personality, this person, this way of thinking, this way of being. And from the perspective of a very limited view that we usually start with, I'm here in this bag of bones and skin and organs, and you're out there in a similar but different one. There's no way to measure what comes out of Zazen, because the self cannot measure the self. It's another reference system measuring another reference system. And yet, if our life is not changing in the practice of Zazen, assuming that it is an ongoing practice, that there's an investment in it, a commitment in it, then that should be looked at. So I said that we cannot measure the effect of Zazen on our insight into selflessness. The Buddha didn't comment on the presence or absence of a self. He simply pointed to the fact that the self cannot be apprehended, cannot be captured and caught and fixed. That when we look for a self, there's nothing you can say. One way to understand this is that as our thoughts become thinner and more transparent, as we practice Zazen, our behavior becomes more flexible, more open more relational. And the places we have cemented to in the past become more friable and tender.
So what does Zazen rest on? It's very difficult to see what it rests on. And rests on no thing. Nothing that you can summarize and capture. And, and that's why Joshu said, what is Zazen? It's not Zazen. It's not anything you can capture or think about and sum up. And of course, ultimately, everything, each thing is like that, particularly you. Zazen is alive. Look in these relatively short periods of Zazen that we've had today, all the places you've been. I sound like Dr. Seuss. You know, all the journeys you've been on. And yet something is happening. In not doing Zazen, if only for a day, I appreciate that my life begins to kind of wither, get small, I get more reactive, more pushy, more sensitive to my own pain and less sensitive to others' pain. If I don't do Zazen for two days, those around me and close to me begin to sense a difference. And if I don't do Zazen for longer, then my experience of the world with other beings is very different, and they reflect that back. So, in actuality, I sit for the most selfish of reasons. My life is no fun when I don't sit regularly. I'm separated from the specifics and concerns around me. I'm demanding. I'm narrowed, and I'm frustrated and angry. So what makes Zazen so vital? What makes it alive? After all, each of us does Zazen alone. It's enormously helpful to come together and do it as a group and have the energy of each of our practice help us, reinforce us, inspire us, and each of us is sitting alone. Nobody knows what's going on for you. Despite what you might think, there are no balloons above your head radiating your thoughts and feelings for the monitors to see, for the teachers to track. Now, you do reflect your zazen when you, when you come into face-to-face teaching. It's pretty apparent that's... The job of teachers is to, in a sense, not judge, but to, to be present with you wherever you are. And when people have done a lot of Zazen for a long time and have a degree of clarity, that becomes instantly apparent who is sitting before you. It's transparent. But what are we actually doing in Zazen? What do, what, what are we, practicing. I don't mean what are you practicing as opposed to you, but what's the idea here? Well, we're we're practicing renunciation. And I remember the first time I heard it framed that way, I was very resistant. You know, I'm not interested in renouncing anything. But that is what we're practicing. Something is relinquished and given up as we turn our attention to one thing exclusively. Our breath, our awareness of the moment, moo. And there's a lot that goes along with that relinquishing. Again, consider your day so far. 
we're relinquishing comfort. This is not necessarily the most comfortable position and place to spend your day. Time, you know, this day becomes hellish if you measure time minute by minute. You're definitely relinquishing control. You know, everything's laid out. There's no optional activities here. You agreed to this. You signed on. You're relinquishing desire. I notice that at the end of every Zazenkai, I'm really ready for some good pizza. <laughs> but during the Zazenkai, I got to let that go. And after enough decades of practicing Zazen, I recognize the pre-thought of where that is going before it even starts going. And I just, it, as it starts to bubble, it disintegrates. And of course, pizza is the least of it, isn't it? You know, think of your desires today in these three or four rounds of Zazen. What, you know, everybody raise their hand and shout out your desires. No, don't do that. <laughs> Please. <laughs> we have to let go of satisfaction. I mean, have you ever reached a place in Zazen where now I got it, I'm satisfied? This is it. Thank you very much. And how does that work for you? We have to let go of pain, fear, cognition. We all know what it's like to be trapped in the loops of our mind and how stifling and boring that ultimately becomes, and tiring, although we can go for years being willing to do that, reviewing the same old stuff over and over and over again, as if that's going to take us someplace new. We have to let go of justification, rationalization, analysis. None of that will help. Now, perhaps none of these things are totally let go of on a permanent basis. And perhaps they shouldn't be, both in a positive and negative sense. They each have a role to play as we practice relinquishment. And sometimes we have to see it's important to practice not relinquishing of a particular perspective. That There's more to see there. But I suspect most of what we get stuck on is old and familiar friends that we've visited many, 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 many times before. So at some point, we have to trust our inherent intelligence that manifests in Zazen. We have to wake up in the sense, oh, I'm doing this yet again, whatever this is. And yet also recognize that when we can't let go of something, we shouldn't let go of something. We should explore it until we can let go of it. So what's the boundary between... I mean, that's part of Zazen instruction. We should explore it with awareness and depth. And yet, what's the balance between that everlasting exploring and letting go? You know, we can get stuck in either way. We can get stuck in the rigidity of whatever comes up. I'm just going to let go of and come back to Mu or come back to my breath. So nothing is allowed to come up. I once practiced a session that way. It was my first session. 
I was working on, uh, I think I was already working on Moo, I'm not sure. Um, but I was so absolutely determined, completely determined. And so every time something other than it was either my breath or Moo, I think it was my breath, came up, I bashed it away. And I came out of that session with such a fucking headache. I mean, it was remarkable how your will can take you over and you fence off anything that comes in. We also have to recognize there are many moments when we can't let go of our desires for something else. And then the practice of Zazen we're engaged in is teaching us, is teaching us how to practice Zazen. How to practice being the breath is teaching us how to practice being the breath. How to practice seeing into Mu is teaching us how to practice seeing into Mu, and there's no shortcut to that. And it's helpful to acknowledge that from this perspective, if we're open to our own loveliness and generosity and heart, that there's no such thing as bad zazen. It's like the old joke about something else. There's no such thing about it. It's all about your intent and your willingness to be with your own mind and to see that. And we can spend a long time, a long time, struggling with the endless thoughts and not seeming to be able to get anywhere before there is some sign that we're quieting down. And that sign may not even be visible to us. It's one of the reasons we work with teachers. Sometimes it's more of an energy than a specific sign. And we're usually not that sensitive at that point in practice to our own energy. But others certainly are. At the same time, it's important to acknowledge another perspective of Zazen. Then one of no edge, no tension. It's helpful to have some tension in Zazen. It's helpful to understand that we are here to wake up. We're not here to solve all our psychological problems and all the things that distract us during our day and that annoy us and we wish were gone. Those things will never go away. Doesn't mean we're not can't learn to be skillful with them and gentle and compassionate, and that will come out of Zazen. But Zazen is about waking up. You know, there's a, uh, in the Doshinji Code, in the Code of Practice for Students, there's a section which we don't talk about. Um, and, you know, what's the effect or power of it? But basically it says if the student is not practicing in a way that's advancing towards waking up, and I'm not quoting it exactly, that that's a reason for them not to be a student. And once in a great while, that comes up, but not, not because someone's measuring their practice in a way. It's because they're doing destructive things within the context of practice, usually in residency, but not always. And I'm not absolutely sure that's a, that's a judgeable thing. I have complete faith in the Dharma. If someone's sitting and, you know, they're sitting, that's where they are in their life. And no matter what else is happening and what else could be happening, they could be taking drugs, they could be 
running riot in their life. They could be doing lots and lots of things, but they're sitting. Now, whether that qualifies them to be a student of the Mountains and Rivers Order is a, a related but different question. Whether their behavior within the context of other practitioners is destructive is a real question. It's the, the, the reason the Buddha cited it, the only reason the Buddha cited to ask people to leave the sanghas if they're destructive to other people's practice. But it's important. It's, I think, crucial to acknowledge that there is an edge of, to practice, that our aim is not to be always comfortable within zazen. That's not what's going on here. And that edge is the edge towards realization, towards deeper insight into your own being, which, of course, is bottomless and has no boundary. So you don't have to worry about finishing this project in the next couple of weeks. Zen is a question. And zazen is the focal point of that questioning. What question are you asking? I'm asking you that. What question are you asking? You know, it's the question the Guardian Council asks in a slightly different form when a student comes before them to ask, to petition, to become a student. And the Guardian Council, consisting of senior members, monastic and lay, you know, so picture this. You're, you're sitting in front of a group, you know, of three to five people with a couple hundred years probably of experience of zazen, and they're asking you, it's an open book test, why do you practice? You know, why do you want to become a student? You can do everything here, almost everything, and not be formally a student. They're ask, really asking you, why do you want to practice? What is, your, what is motivating? How great is your determination? Because you're going to need a lot of determination and motivation to wake up. What's going to carry you when you get tired when you don't really want to do any more zazen or practice, unless you're connected with that question. So where is the active edge in your life? Where is the life connection? Where's the intelligence? I'm talking about the basic intelligence and wisdom of your being. That when we manifest that, is always, always shining and radiating to other beings. I mean, even though we're devoting time to practice, to zazen, and going to sittings and sashin and studying, still we can be sleeping. So the basis for the depth of zazen is the actual zazen that we do. And yet, we also have to be wary of using that to criticize ourselves, to turn it into a self-related project. Oh, I can't do zazen well enough. I'm, su- I'm supposed to do the best zazen I can, and obviously, my mind is filled with thoughts. I'm not doing the best. Daito Roshi would often tell the story of a, uh, a professor, a brilliant man, who um, was full of self-doubts about himself, and uh, Roshi assigned him shikantaza. And shikantaza practice, you sit there and do nothing. You just sit with the thoughts coming through your mind, with awareness. But just with that, nothing else. There's nothing to do. There's nothing to see. 
just the thoughts, moment by moment by moment. And in, in an interesting way, we're all doing shikantaza. And the man would say, I can't do it. I'm failing. And Dado would say, you can't fail. You can't fail at this. There's no technique. There's no way to fail. And the guy would say, I'm failing. I'm failing. And he left because he was a failure. Well, that's interesting. He was staked on his failure. That was his success. That he failed. So Zazen is completely personal. It's yours. You're on your own. We are each on our own. And yet sometimes it can act as a time bomb and blow up our life in the best possible way, addressing deeply entrenched attachments. How did that happen? When did that happen? Where did we get there? Awakenings happen like that. You know, the way people have an awakening, um, and I'm talking about a Kensho here, is different for each person. But almost always, if not always, it's one moment not, and the next moment yes. There's no transition. And so there's no anticipation of it, of course. No way to control it or demand something from it or judge it. You don't know. You don't have any idea. And that's not limited to koan practice or mu. The quality that emerges from zazen is samadhi, the depths of stillness. As I said before, depending on our karma, depending on our aspiration, that can happen quickly or it can take years for some degree of stillness that you're aware of to begin to emerge. And this stillness is not a stillness that it's opposed that is opposed to movement. You can say it in two different ways that are the same way. One is the mind does not move, no matter what the circumstances. Completely present. And the other is the mind is completely moving, is the circumstances. It's identical, is the activity. In either way you look at it, there's no gap, there's no space, there's no reference. There's no differences in the midst of differences. There are no differences. It's whole. This is the aliveness of Zazen. One of the interesting places in Zazen is when the mind just begins to touch the boundary of stillness, we block, we stop. Maybe we get frightened. It's new ground. We don't know what this is. You know, um, I have, over the years, had some close friends who uh, um, do improvisational theater. And I don't know if you've ever had the chance to do theater games, but they're remarkable, very, very good for Zen training. Um, and, um, you know, basically in improv, uh, you're before an audience, and perhaps there are people here who know much more about it than I do, um, there's an offer made. There's a situation set up. And that means that you and I are defining that situation in some manner, a word, a description, an action, silence, non-action. 
And we're creating the reality of that moment in that. And it's not planned. We may be giving a, a name to someone or something or identifying a relationship or location or using a physical uh, miming a situation. And an offer can be very directive or it can be very open. And what makes improv work is the response to that offer. What makes it doesn't what make it what makes it not work is the blocking of that offer. So the whole key to this is to accept what's being offered and go. And it's not rehearsed. So on one hand, it could be scary as shit because we don't know, we're not in control, and who knows what's going to emerge. And usually, when you accept an offer, you're adding a new offer. And the opposite of that is denying it. No, blocking it. And you can imagine what happens in improv when we do that. Well, this is our life. Here it is. We don't know what's going to happen next. We don't know what the person we're having a conversation with is going to say. We don't know what their reaction is going to be to us or our reaction to them. Denial is a, well, a well-attended method of protecting ourselves. It's a way for us to play it safe in Zazen. We're not going there. We're blocking the possibility of anything beyond what we already know happening. At its simplest level, blocking is just saying no. At a more subtle level, something that just stops change. The, the change is too challenged to my mind. You know, you can see blocking in many different places. People have their agendas. If you've been in a work situation with a group and someone makes a proposal, it's very interesting to see the reactions around the group to that proposal, independent of the worth of the proposal. And people habitually tend to block out of safety. The motto of fear is when in doubt, say no. Interesting way to live. Interesting way to be in relationship. And I have spent a lot of time in my own life working with that. And there's good reasons for me to do that, to to say no. But that's not helpful to me at this point in my life. Those past reasons. So many of us are highly skilled at suppressing action. You know, another form of uh, blocking is asking questions. Isn't that interesting? How we can ask questions and demand from the other person that they fill in the information. And in that way, we don't have to avoid committing to a choice or a decision. Another way of playing it safe. And the point of Zazen is to open up the mind, to have it be flexible within the context of our personality, to have it evolve. If what all the masters and Buddhas say, that this very body, this very personality, the specifics of who I think I am, is limitless and boundless, then how are we going to work with our blocks, our nose, our fears? And so we work we, we take them on. We take them on by seeing them. And all of us have them. All of us have the places 
as Emma Shoden says, that scare us. But interestingly enough, as we begin to shed some light on those places, become aware of them, look at them, actually look at them. We can see them as thoughts, thoughts, feelings. They may have a basis, and that basis may be useful or not, but from a spiritual perspective, they have no basis. They're just stuff that we've made up and fixed into a thing which actually does not exist, and that's what we experience in Zazen, that non-existence. If we're willing, and we experience it by seeing it, by honoring it in that seeing and letting it go. And each time we do that, there's a deeper degree of confidence in our zazen. In, to frame this another way, in our own fundamental nature, a deeper degree. And that allows us to trust it. And it's what makes zazen alive. It's what makes it real. So if we just do zazen on automatic, this is the instruction, this is what I do, da 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 then we may not encounter the barriers. We're just playing it safe. That doesn't mean that we just say yes at every opportunity. It's more subtle than a rule of just opening up every time a barrier is before us. There's, there's a psychology to us, a personality to us, a timing to what life brings and where we are. And so what's important is a willingness to acknowledge what is before us and to see it and to honor it and to explore it and maybe to put it down and maybe to pick it up. In other words, to enter into the process of studying of our own mind without getting caught up in nailing that down and knowing and also aligning ourselves with the fact that this is a spiritual practice, not a psychological practice. We're not here, doesn't exclude psychological sense of self, but we're not here to make a better self more capable of understanding our neurosis. That may happen, will happen, but it's not what this is about. That's spiritual materialism from a spiritual sense. It may be perfectly good psychological progress, but it's not waking up. So this is a practice that sometimes requires careful consideration. Not so much a practice of saying yes or no, but the awareness and careful consideration of our habit. In the halls of Zazen, we learn to cultivate possibilities we might never have before contemplated. We have the opportunity to to honor the muse the goddess of a creative life, our life as creation, as creative expression. Sazen is creative expression. Have we ever thought about it as that way? Very interesting way to think of Sazen as creativity. And when we begin to trust that, then the muse, the bodhisattva of our heart, begins to feel safe and welcome and enters as inspiration and vision and kindness and a loving heart. And we begin to experience this as our nature, even when we overlay that with anger or distance or fear. We are learning to trust something deeper than that. 
So that anger and distrust and fear passes through us. It tends not to lodge and get caught. And this is what makes Zazen alive. I relate to Zazen from the perspective of the Tathagarbha, which is a word that means womb of the Buddha. It's equivalent to Buddha nature, but comes at it from a slightly different direction, womb. And the Tathagarbha does not need any cultivation. It is our heart. It is that child that is within us that is crying and loving and wants to love and imbues our body and mind. It's already fully present and it's perfect within us. In a sense, it's an unknown treasure that has to be uncovered by our zazen, made manifest. And made manifest within the peculiarities of our own personality. Each different, each of us expresses our personality differently. And yet, it is who we are. It's pure, it's ungraspable, it's inconceivable, really. It's true, and it's not subject to birth or death, and it's who we are. As I've been talking, I realize that something could be pointed at a little more directly. When Dogen came back from China, he, Dogen was Japanese, and he went on a very risky trip to China to find a true Zen master, and he came back. This is in 1200 or so, 1220 or so. When he came back and he asked what he had received in his trip, he said, a loving heart. It's the hardest part of Zazen, to see and to feel and to allow and to be without judgment. Judgment of ourself and judgment of others. It's the place that on one hand we know and on the other hand we know nothing about. It's the place that lives in completely being. So we sit here with all our karma, with all the flaws, flaws, F-L-A-W-S, so to speak, of our personality, all the stucknesses and fears and desires. And we sit in Zazen with that. And those are the entry points. Isn't that wild? that the very things we usually don't like about ourselves and don't want about ourselves are the entry points. Seeing them, looking deeply into them, seeing what they're made of, because they come up again and again and again as we sit. And seeing to this even the slightest small amount can open us up, can invite us to trust something within us that we've not been able to trust in this way before inviting us to love this body and mind, loving you, no one excluded. Zazen is alive. It's your life. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as meditation cushions, incense, malas, liturgical instruments, books, and more, visit the Monastery Store at monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.